Welcome to International History Declassified, the podcast that provides an insider's view of the history of the post-war world and the historians who study it. International History Declassified is a production of the History and Public Policy Program at the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars. Hello, and thank you for joining us. I'm your host, Peter Beerstaker. And I'm your co-host, Keon Byrne. The Wilson Center's History and Public Policy Program uses archival sources and history to improve understanding of important global dynamics, trends in international relations, and U.S. foreign policy. The program is home to the Digital Archive, a free online resource of newly declassified materials from around the world, available and accessible at www.digitalarchive.org. In each episode of International History Declassified, Peter and I will sit down with historians to discuss their work and experiences researching in the field of international history. By examining their sources and methods, we hope to share with you the latest research being done on many different events, periods, and places that help shape our understanding of the world today. Thank you for joining us on International History Declassified. Today, we are very happy to have with us Rebecca Whiting. Ms. Whiting is a PhD candidate at the University of Glasgow, whose research focuses on the question of conflict and displaced records, particularly from the Middle East, and their use by scholars. Rebecca, welcome. Thank you for for having me. I'm excited to be talking with you both. Um, I thought we could just jump in and and start uh, by asking, uh, can you tell us a little bit about your work and your research for your dissertation? Yeah, of course. So I, yeah, as you said, I'm just finishing my PhD at the University of Glasgow and looking at um, archives displaced from Iraq during the Gulf Wars. So in fact, six large collections of documents left Iraq through US intervention between 1992 and 2016. These displacements included the involvement of the US military, US government agencies, non-governmental organizations, journalists and private individuals. So. I look at um, the different sort of power relations that have enabled displacement of documentary heritage in conflict. Well, I think I think it's sort of a, a big subject that you're undertaking, but it's interesting that you're kind of focusing on uh, Iraq and the displacement of, of records from the Iraqi archives. What sort of brought you down that path versus um, other records that have been sort of in conflict? The uh, displacements probably constitute the largest archival displacement since since the Second World War. And a lot of scholars that um, work with foreign records uh, uh, can be quite unaware of the, the long history of archival um, seizures during conflict and the long processes that are behind their repatriations, if they are ever repatriated. Can we go into that process a little bit? So so uh, specifically for the Iraq records, can you explain sort of the history of those collections? Um, what are these collections that were sort of uh, taken? What, what's what been going on with them the last few years? Because as I understand, it's from 2003 this started happening. So what's been going on the last almost 20 years now? Well, actually, uh, there was a huge development last week. Or I'm not, wait, where are we now? On the 31st of August, a huge collection was repatriated, which has been years and years in the in the discussions. But to start from the first uh, large known collection, the North Iraq data set was actually records, um, Iraqi state and central authority records that were seized by uh, Kurdish groups during an uprising in 1991. To, to give a background to the uprising, the Kurdish communities had been heavily repressed 
by um, the Ba'ath regime for decades and, and by consecutive like uh, Iraqi governments prior to the Ba'ath regime. Uh, and when, after Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait in 1990, the vast majority of the Iraqi security forces were occupied in that conflict and uprisings took place in the southern parts of Iraq and also in the Kurdish regions. And during the um, uprisings in the Kurdish regions, local political organizations and community members overran all the institutions of the central authorities that these sites and monuments and institutions of repression and um, opened the prisons, seized weapons and also seized all the records they could get their hands on, including uh, including vast caches of uh, secret police records and such things. So the central Iraqi forces actually retook the regions within three weeks um, in a very brutal repression. But the political Kurdish political groups had uh, hidden away quite a lot of the documents in sort of stronghold areas. They came from towns across three governorates. So there's, there was a huge amount of records oh. from different institutions. A U.S. Senate Foreign Relations Committee staffer, Peter Galbraith, uh, became aware of the documents and started a process of negotiation to get the get the files out of Iraq because it seemed likely that Saddam would entirely retake the regions. Ah, so at the same time all this was happening, the U.S. and Allied forces, um, in response to the uh, brutal repression of the uprising ended up imposing a safe zone in the regions. Operation Provide Comfort and uh, within this milieu there was a, a no-fly zone. Kurdish, there'd been like vast movements of peoples into the neighboring countries, Turkey and Iran, so people were able to start um, coming back to Iraqi Kurdistan. And yeah, so while this was all going on, the situation was very unstable and Peter Galbraith suggested to the Kurdish political leaders that the documents would be best kept out of Iraq. And then a long process of negotiation took place. Various Kurdish groups, political groups, had uh, large collections of records and eventually they were yet transferred in separate loads to the US in 92 and 93. Just, I'm curious that that's a, a very long, long time for uh, for for repatriation of of the documents. Uh, what what happened to them while they were um, in the U.S.? Were they were they utilized by uh, by researchers, by scholars? What what, um, what became of them? So they had a they had a long and co complicated history, and this is just one of this. This is just the first of the six collections. Um, they were so Human Rights Watch was also involved, or a branch of Human Rights Watch, Middle East Watch in um, investigating the crimes against humanity and allegations of genocide that had taken place in Iraq um, against the Kurdish peoples and the other minority ethnicities that um, reside in the majority Kurdish governorates in northern Iraq. So the, the military imposed safe zone allowed researchers into the area for the first time and there was exhumation of mass graves, a lot of interviews with um, local community members trying to ascertain what had been happening during the, the decades prior. The human rights abuses were horrific and um, the numbers of the populations to have died in these uh, campaigns vary massively, but I believe some put the counts at 100,000 people. 
when the documents did uh, arrive in the US, an unusual agreement, very unusual agreement was reached between Human Rights Watch and the Defense Intelligence Agency to work together to process the documents. They were, they were, there was such an enormous number, I think 18 metric tons um, of files. And so they worked, I think over four years to try and process the, um, the files, copy them, uh, Human Rights Watch developed an index sheet um, to say what the what was included in the files and Human Rights Watch was working with the notion of preparing a case against uh, against Saddam Hussein and his officials proving that genocide had taken place, preparing a case that could potentially be taken, be used in an international tribunal, which obviously never happened. That's that's a it's an interesting collaboration between Human Rights Watch and, and Defense Intelligence Agency. Not necessarily uh, two groups organizations I would I would expect to be natural partners, but uh, interesting how they how they came together and, and collaborated on on this on this set and collection. It was it's an unprecedented move, and then in the end, after four years of work and the compiling of a report, the the Middle East Watch official who was leading the project, used Hilterman, who's written about it, just said the international political will didn't exist to um, take the case any further, Mm. despite all the evidence collected. And um, nothing ever came of it. And at that point, Boulder University requested to take custody of the files and did so. So they were at Boulder from 1998 until 2005. Uh, where they were made available to researchers. So that that all sounds sort of um, important and good to me, right? I mean, sort of the releasing of this information and the publicizing of these atrocities so that the world can sort of take action and build a case against Saddam, who's committing these atrocities. Uh, where where does the conflict come in? Like, where where, where does the controversy come in? Um, understand that the the will wasn't there to carry the case forward, but why is it an issue to have these documents available for scholars so that they can learn and they can study and they can further publicize, even if a formal case isn't being made. Okay, so the files, some of them document torture, they document extreme, extreme abuses, state-sponsored abuses of human rights. And the files document the like personally identifiable information of both perpetrators and victims. And this is all in very, well, especially at the times, very recent history. Also, some sources have suggested that the Kurdish political party's main interest in the files when they first seized them was uh, was to look for evidence of perpetrators within their organizations. And so anecdotally, for example, I've heard of one file that tells the case of a teacher who was um, requesting a transfer to a school in another part of the regions and was told that her her wish would only be granted if she agreed to to inform on her colleagues. So uh, this is the way the regime in Iraq worked. People were coerced into informing for the regime and for the regime. And I think there's some very there's some, the information in the records contained is incredibly sensitive and very context dependent i mean if if people are if people are exposing this information they need to have a full understanding of the context in which these records were created i think so exposing this 
exposing this information could or would uh, demonstrate the abuses committed by the Iraqi regime, but at the same time it denies any rights to privacy for the peoples whose lives are recorded in them. Absolutely. I, I, I remember uh, one of the first Wilson Center projects I, I worked on was a, was a conference we did with the, uh, the Conflict Records Research Center at National Defense University. This must have been back in 2011 or something. Um, and it was working with a, a collection of uh, captured Iraqi documents from the, the invasion in 2003. Um, it was a very interesting process. We, we obviously on the Wilson Center end were very separated from the the raw uh, cache of documents. Um, they had a full-time uh, team of, of researchers, uh, translators, uh, going through uh, the materials and, and preparing them for uh, scholarly use, uh, essentially scrubbing all the, the PII, personally identifiable, inf- identifiable information, um, from them so that they could actually be utilized by by academics and, and scholars. Uh, it certainly is a, a, a challenge when, when there are potentially negative repercussions from from something that could be gleaned from these documents but um how uh how do you think the the scholarly community should balance its its sort of obligation to uh, get materials out there but also at the same time protect uh, those who might be might be negatively infected by their their release well i think so as i understand it the um the the us academic approach is through the um the irb process but the onus is on the scholar to sort of make the ethical and moral decisions as to what to um as to how to broach the material whereas if that were compared to the uk for example we have much more stringent data protection hmm. laws here so I think a, a, a huge responsibility is placed on individual scholars. If we so if we compare um, the case you're discussing with um, with the Bath Party region, like the Bath Regional Command Collection, which was displaced. Well, this is the one that just went back uh, a few days ago, but it was available to researchers through what well, digitized copies were available to researchers at the Hoover Institution for many years. And uh, the team that worked with it had tried various approaches to redacting names and f- found it such a complex process. Also, like a lot of these documents are handwritten. Mm. So, and there are millions of pages. So redacting everything, reda- redacting personally identifiable information is no, uh, is no mean feat. Um, and and uh, yeah, and with the handwritten text. Um, but in the end, uh, at the Hoover Institution, the so that collection is known as the BRCC, um, decided to n- not redact anything to sort of make to democratically allow access to the information, as it were, which raises raises huge ethical concerns for material that can be so politically explosive. But um, you were asking about sort of where where the onus lies. Um, my personal belief is that the, pe- the peoples whose lives are recorded in files that document horror need to be considered as stakeholders in any decisions as to how uh, these files uh, are managed. And that has rarely been the case when archives are displaced, mm. especially through conflict, when it's as if the sins of a repressive nation uh, allow sort of entire disregard for the rights of its citizens. 
I, I think you're you're getting into some really interesting territory, and I want to sort of explore it a little bit further. Um, so we've been sort of discussing how um, uh, the documents have been treated once they've come over to the U.S., particularly with these two separate um, Iraqi collections. And it seems like some of the issues have stemmed from how the documents have treat, been treated once they're here and sort of what information is being allowed, what information is being accessible, and is it even possible when working with so much material to ethically and, and properly censor out the the sensitive information um, that could put people's lives at risk. But now we're sort of getting into the area of whether the documents should be used at all and the question of stakeholders. Um, First, can you explain what you mean by stakeholders? And second, um, can we talk a little bit further about, you know, whether it's ethical at all to use these documents if they've been captured, if they've been taken during combat? um that yeah opening pandora's box there when it comes let's do it (laughs) (laughs) um so maybe to uh start with um defining captured archives i think it's worth considering in each case the conditions under which the archives were captured is it worth um approaching very differently the north iraq data set because they were captured during an internal uprising by domestic opponents to the Iraqi regime and captured by the people whose whose very lives were being oppressed through the mechanisms that the records afforded the state, the control that the, as a sort of surveillance regime, the records were were the one of the mainstays of the regime's control. So um, those records being seized, should they be considered very differently from records seized during an international conflict by a, an invading force. I'd say that's one question. And yeah, I think there are so many ways to approach uh, approach these issues. But when I, when I say stakeholders, I'm thinking about the people whose lives are inscribed in the documents and, and their representatives. And uh, often there'll be conflicting interests within records. I think universally that's the case i've been recently reading an article on american national security agency surveillance um, collections and debates as to whether they should be declassified so that the american population is aware of the levels of surveillance that um its own government has uh, Mm. um has used against it um or whether the rights to privacy of the individuals whose lives in those records should be the priority and and the debates continue with people having very strong opinions on either side so what happens then when one side or stakeholder is viewed as malicious or or malevolent we talked about the new york times documents taken from isis but also the bath regime in iraq prior to the u.s invasion how have you been handling the complexities of these questions in your dissertation well, like you said, the levels of, of complexity are a wide, a wide ranging. But I suppose one way of thinking about it is who is defining what constitutes a malevolent, a malevolent force. I mean, if uh, if it's uh, opponents of the American invasion, is that one thing? If it, like, who who gets to make those moral judgments? There no like no denying the Ba'ath regime was brutal. It was um, people lived under extreme repression and violence. 
yeah, who who gets to make moral judgments about about these documents and who the the legitimate stakeholders are? I I think those questions are always political, and all and and always context based. But so another example that of something I look at in my uh, dissertation is the Iraqi Jewish archive, which is it's not state records. It was records, texts, manuscripts, and books created by the Iraqi Jewish community who were heavily persecuted by many Iraqi governments consecutively. And um, the vast majority of the population left Iraq under, under persecution. But these uh, records had been seized from a community center and were held in the Muhabarat, the um, intelligence uh, headquarters in Baghdad, and then they were massively damaged when U.S. Uh, bombings in the 2003 invasions hit the Mukhabarat building and flooded the basement. So troops that were looking for weapons of mass destruction came across these documents and um, see seeing them heavily damaged, removed them from the basement and began a project to try and conserve them, which eventually led them being shipped out of Iraq. And they, the agreement according to which they were shipped uh, stipulated that they were Iraqi property. Um, one of the big questions that's come up around this uh, archive, it's now, it's called the Iraqi Jewish archive, but uh, some people who've been involved with it think that it's erroneous to call it an archive. It, it also uh, contains religious artifacts and, um, other non-traditional archival material, but um, it belonged, it was created by a minority community whose interests the Iraqi state did not uh, represent. So considering it Iraqi, pro Iraqi state property is um, contentious and that these debates continue and in large part due to the debates around who are the legitimate owners of this archive? It has not been repatriated. It remains in the U.S. at the at this moment, and is um, yeah, a, a lot of heated debate has arisen about where it belongs. Yeah, and can you can you tell us a little bit about some of that debate and discussion about sort of the the balance between uh, finding a a good you know returning these 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 documents to their stakeholders to their their countries of origins um, versus um, perhaps preserving them, making them available for, for researchers uh, while hosting them in the US, the UK, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, is, is, there, is there a discussion about how, how to balance um, you know, the preservation of materials versus the, the repatriation? Um, and, and what is that discussion like? Well, I think that discussion is had far more regularly in museum studies. I think, uh, <laughs> I think the Elgin marbles is the case that is often quoted, but that's why I've always held that um, archive, the treatment of archives can never be considered as apolitical, while they may well have been preserved by their having been displaced, who is now granted access to them? Uh, all, and that goes for all of the archives that have been displaced from the Middle East and other countries of the so-called global south. So, and not just archives, also cultural heritage. And there's a, a history of this going back centuries uh, and a lot of Iraqi writers have and scholars have commented on it that the the narratives around these displacements are in, held in terms of you don't have the uh, 
<laughs> your region is too insecure you don't have the technical capacities to look after this stuff we'll look after it for you or even even with some of the archives i've heard people say iraq isn't ready for its own history yet but who who gets to make these these decisions and what at, at what costs so although especially when it com comes to archives that i don't know maybe maybe just heritage in general is is its preservation always sh should that be what's most what's most highly valued if if it's beyond the access of the people whose lives and countries and histories mm. it pertains to don't have that access i think it's a really complicated difficult question because <laughs> i mean I, I i like i'm a little bit on the the preservation side to be honest just because it to me it feels like there's, there's so much sort of important information that needs to be saved because once it's gone, it's gone, right? I mean, and, and particularly with something like, um, you know, diplomatic papers and things like that, that um, is really more my <laughs> realm of, of sort of, I won't say expertise, but interest at the very least. Um, so I, I come, I'm very sort of sympathetic to that, that point of view, but you know, when, when you're framing it in terms of documents that have been sort of captured by force and then withheld because one side is deciding that the other side is not able to handle it, it adds this layer of sort of, um, you know, moral complexity that that is sort of new, uh, at least new to me, um, and maybe sort of uh, growing within the field. Um, but I, I just wonder um, if in the case, say, of Iraq, which is still very much a kind of, you know, um, in, in, in sort of you know, turmoil almost, but, you know, um, still facing serious conflict and there's still serious danger to the, the preservation of these materials. Um, is there sort of a middle ground where um, you can sort of make sure that these documents are not um, going off to be destroyed or to be used for, for um, the wrong reasons, but you're also not just sort of dictating um, for other countries how they handle their own private materials and their own information? I mean, has the, has the discussion, I'm not necessarily asking you to solve this, <laughs> this problem yourself. I, to I, to I totally have opinions on that. Uh, well, I'd like um, to hear your opinions, yeah. Well, one of them, maybe an easy place to start would be not displacing them to the invading Well, okay, invading let's, let's be realistic here. I mean... <laughs> <laughs> the archives could have gone to regional, regional nations and yeah been accessible to people that can get visas to like more yeah closer mm. neighboring countries for example um, I mean, that that, that kind of actually answered it in a pretty serious way i mean just don't take them <laughs> in the first place but second if you do maybe don't keep them for yourself and sort of hold them back and, and decide maybe expand the conversation into not just the stakeholders but sort of the global community and the the sort of broader group of scholars and experts and people who might be able to take these things in context and, and take into account the sort of significance of what's been taken. And, and... Okay, so to, to use a, a real life example, which I think very much highlights some of these issues, and you mentioned the brief briefly, but the last collection of uh, documents to have left Iraq through the intervention of US-based actors was the what's become known as the ISIS files, which were records created by the Islamic State uh, that were left behind in Mosul and the surrounding areas during the um, the uh, yeah the battles against the Islamic State 
um, a US-based New York Times journalist and her team were writing on, um, on the battle for Mosul, uh, which was the Iraqi army battling the Islamic State on the ground, uh, backed by very heavy US airstrikes, which led to enormous civilian deaths, um, which is really, uh, really spoken about in the news. But anyway, um, the journalists um, went around embedded with Iraqi troops and were specifically looking for documents in buildings that they knew had been occupied by the Islamic State. And they found uh, a great deal of information from Islamic State prison records to tax records, um, pamphlets on dress codes, uh, and all, all sorts of other things, and uh, took them back with them in their suitcases to, to New York. And some of these files to this day, or last I checked a few months ago, were um, scans of them were just uploaded to the New York Times, including personally identifiable information of uh, Iraqi civilians that were living under Mosul. So there, um, as well as the violations they suffered under the occupation of their towns by the Islamic State, they then had their these a second violation by these um, by these documents being exposed in an incredibly public way. But the arguments behind the displacements and then the exposure of these violations was firstly that they would have been destroyed if they hadn't been taken from Iraq and that the sort of the world community has a right to know how is the Islamic State operated. But so firstly, the documents may well have been destroyed. Mosul, I mean, huge swathes of Mosul were left in rubble after the airstrikes and the and the conflict there. Uh, so they, they have been preserved, but I feel like because they've been displaced so far from their place of origin, the rights of the people whose lives they document were considered insignificant. That's how, that's how I feel the, the treatment, that's why I feel the treatment of the documents demonstrates. It's secondary to the sort of broader kind of eagle-eye view rather than the actual human experience that's being sort of depicted. When a when a when a fourteen year old child's uh, personally identifiable information is posted unredacted onto the internet, very hard to uh, argue that their rights were taken into consideration. There. Or or that that serves some value to the global scholarly community. Yeah, I, that, that's how I that's how I see it. So so, but many people, uh, many commentators believe that preserving them was the um, was the right thing to do. But I guess for me, I always look at it in terms of who who had the the access and the resources to make those moral judgments. Because you don't see you don't see the equivalent of documents moving from uh, Western nations to, to other parts of the world and exposing the the human rights abuses that happen in in our in our parts of the world. No, that's that's certainly true. Uh, it, it it is a, a bit of a one way street there. Um, just uh, if I could ask you to put on a bit of a hypothetical cap for a second, you know, this this is not the first. Uh, obviously, you know, there are large, lots of history of of, of records being being taken during uh, during conflict times. It's more than likely going to happen again at some point in the future. Um, for for that, you know, next conflict when when the, the question of archives and records are 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 brought uh, brought to light. Um, what do you think would would 
help some of the decision makers help help the people you know deciding what to do uh practice good form and and um handle things responsibly and and i mean obviously you said earlier it'd be best if this perhaps these conflicts uh these records were, were never taken but um i'm i'm a little pessimistic that that is is real uh likely to happen um what do you think would be would be a a, a way to to establish some best practices uh something sort of standardized and consistent that, that might be able to, to be utilized by, by researchers and, and those who have taken the records? I mean, the, um, the international archivist community has been uh, meeting on and talking about these issues for years. Um, the, some, of the, some of the points worth considering is that with, with conflict archive, decisions are being made in life-threatening situations. I was talking about the New York Times journalists, but they they risked their lives um, in, in finding those documents. That And I can well imagine that trying to make sort of informed decisions in in the middle of a conflict zone is is, is, may, is it, that that may be entirely unrealistic that's there's reasons why vast amounts of documents are swept up in these in these scenarios my concern is that when researchers are considering accessing these files that they very much consider the power dynamics behind the acquisitions of the documents and consider why these particular things were considered worthy of preservation by whom and for whom and when they are deployed in narratives, so researchers writing about the Ba'ath regime or about the Islamic State, what are the narratives being propagated and do those narratives serve to perpetuate the asymmetries in global power relations that see countries like Iraq in constant conflict? All right. Well, Rebecca, thank you so much for, for coming on today. It was really fun to, to explore these really complex issues in a very short period of time. Um, it was a lot of fun. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, I think these things really need to be discussed and uh, the debates and controversies, the more they rage, the more um, maybe protocols will be put in place to protect people or at least uh, for scholars to bear in mind when accessing contested archival heritage. As always, you can get in touch with us by emailing coldwar at wilsoncenter.org. We'd like to thank Graham Norwood for this podcast's music. You've been listening to International History Declassified, a podcast focused on history, historians, their sources, and their methods. International History Declassified is available on all your favorite podcast platforms. And for more information on a world of topics, issues, and ideas, please visit wilsoncenter.org. International History Declassified is a production of the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars. 